The scripture reading this morning is Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The word of the Lord. Slow, uh, a short reading, we can take it a little slower and chew on it. I thought that was wonderful. Thank you. Excellent. As uh, we today, we um, continue our series of messages in which we're talking about uh, encountering the sacred in ordinary life. And, uh, and today we're talking about the, the, the sacredness, sacred wisdom, and the ancient Christian practice of discernment. The practice of discernment. Uh, I'll always remember the sweetness of Friday night fellowship in the first church where I served in an ordained capacity as a pastor. It was a small, very small, second generation Taiwanese American church in Garden Grove, California. And about half of the congregation was made up of college and young adults. The other half were their parents. Uh, and every Friday night, the college and young adults would gather uh, for, for dinner, for worship, and for fellowship. And I'd join them every week. And almost inevitably, every single week, I would get these types of questions. Hey, Pastor Chris, I'm, I'm thinking about going to graduate school, and I've got acceptance letters from Berkeley and UCLA. My parents want me to go to Berkeley, but I really want to know, what does God want me to do? Or, hey, Chris, uh, I've, uh, Lauren and I have been dating for over two years now, and I, I, I don't know if she's the one. I think she's the one but what if I'm wrong? Or, hey, Pastor Chris, I got job offers in Denver and in San Diego. They're both really good opportunities, but I'm afraid if I choose the wrong one that it will set my entire life off in the wrong direction. What do I do? This is college ministry at its finest. Um, but not just college ministry, these are questions that we all ask at, at, all, at every season and age and stage of our lives. And the question that, we're really under, that is really underneath these questions is, what is the will of God? And how do I understand God's will for my life so that I can follow God's will for my life. They, they want to know how to discern God's will, and so today we're going to try to tackle that subject. We're, and we're going to look at it in three ways. We're going to look at it from a, a theological lens, we're going to look at it from a biblical perspective, and then we're going to spend a lot of time on the practical real-life application of how we can um, grow in this sacred art called discernment. So let's start with theology. 
When I was in college, I began asking these questions myself. How do I understand God's, God's will? And I went to a Christian liberal arts school that was highly philosophical in nature, and so we often found ourselves asking and having these kind of esoteric philosophical conversations in the dorms. And I was working at the time uh, as a youth director for a junior high ministry of a local Presbyterian church called El Montecito Presbyterian Church. And the senior pastor was very, very in, into Reformed theology, and he was quite the theologian, and I was brand new at kind of thinking about theology, and so I went to him with this question, and I remember um, how helpful it was in the way in which he explained it to me, because there are at least three different ways of understanding the intent of this question, how do I understand God's will, that we see wrestled through in the Bible. Is it about one God's sovereign will for creation, that is God's total ultimate plan for creation? Is it about God's moral will, that is be the difference between right and wrong? Or is it about God's personal specific will for how I should live my life and what I should do? So let me see if I can remind you of how these three things um, play out in the form of a diagram. So here is the, on the outer ring, we have the sovereign will of God. This is God's total plan for creation. So when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said that the arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice, he was referring to the sovereign will of God, that the worst thing is not the last thing, that God is making all things new, and the ultimate arc and plan of creation is the renewal of all things. Within that is God's moral will, that, that which is right and wrong. And then the question is, is God's specific will for my life this tiny little dot in the midst of this vast sphere of, what, of that which is known as God's moral will between right and wrong, that is such that I have to figure out where this little geography is in order to be in the center or in God's will, and if I deviate, then I'm outside of God's will. Well, that's one way of looking at it. Here, I think, is a, perhaps a little new and improved version or a better way of looking at it. There's God's sovereign will, and then there's God's moral will, and then within God's moral will is this large sandbox called uh, the area of freedom and responsibility. And as I've talked with people over the years, I hear common phrases like, I want to stay right in the center of God's will, as if God's will is this tiny little area of geography. And if you deviate, then you're outside of God's will. Or as if God's will is like one of four you know, doors, three of which are trapped, and if you don't choose the right one, you're going down the trap door, right? This is not how God's will works. Let's talk a little bit about how this theology comes to us in the form of, of a few very clear statements. It's from a book called Decision Making in the Will of God by Gary Friesen. This is the way or the pathway toward wisdom that he describes. Where God commands, we must obey. So moral will, God says do this, there's not a lot of room, wriggle, wiggle room, we obey where God commands. Where there is no command, like should I have an orange or an, a or an apple for breakfast, God gives us freedom and responsibility to choose. 
Where there is no command, God gives us wisdom to choose. Should I have eggs or ice cream for breakfast? Well, the choice is yours. God gives you freedom, hopes that you choose wisely, right? When we have chosen what is moral and wise, we must trust the sovereign God to work all the details for good. So this helps us understand a little bit as we're talking about the will of God and how these different pieces come into play. So that's kind of a theological overview. Now let's look at scripture and all the way back in the beginning of the Bible, this very foundational story in Genesis 1, we're told that we are created in the image of God, that we are to reflect as God's image bearers, God's character, God's will, God's desires in the world, that each and every one of us, in a sense, have been given a dominion. We've been given a sphere of, of influence where we are free to exercise our will in the world. Uh, and in the midst of that, we're called to exercise wise judgment in the freedom of the area that God has given to us. In other words, God hasn't given me freedom to exercise my will in Hong Kong. No, here we have a sphere of where we live out our lives and exercise our will. And then we see this. In other words, we each have a garden, right? We've talked about that. Uh, and then we see this in chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may eat freely of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. There's a lot of confusion about what is this one tree and this one prohibition, but the shorthand understanding was this wasn't God sort of making things a little difficult for Adam and Eve, saying, you know, just make sure you don't trip and eat this from this tree and, and go down the trap door. No, this was... This was um, God saying that eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil isn't just eating a forbidden fruit. It's a way of saying that I'm going to determine for myself what is right and what is wrong. That I'm not going to submit to a higher authority, but I'm going to determine what is right and what is wrong. And so it's a rejection of God's will as the moral authority in our lives. I can be God of what is right and what is wrong. Going all the way back to the beginning... Interestingly enough, God told them that they could eat from any of the other trees in the garden, lest one. There's so much freedom to enjoy the garden. God doesn't care whether they choose to eat bananas one day or oranges another day. They could eat whatever they wanted except one and so that story reminds us that sometimes we have a tendency to forget that God has given us that kind of freedom to enjoy as well. I love how St. Augustine put it. He said, love God and do what you want. Love God and do what you want. Now, this isn't necessarily, uh, this isn't exactly like a blank check, right, to go and do whatever you want, like in, in that, okay, I went to church, I read my Bible, I said my prayer, I did the loving God thing, I'll put that aside, and now I'll go and do whatever I want. No, it's more like out of our love for God, do whatever you want. Live your life. 
love God and do what you want. And what Augustine means by that is that as you love God and as you um, develop your relationship with the living and loving God, that God's will and your will slowly over time will begin to merge together. And that's the goal, so that what comes naturally is, uh, is obedience, right, out of our love for God. And that's why Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey, obey my commandments. He doesn't say, love me by obeying my, if you love me, you will obey. It's just a truth statement he's making there. Um, and so what does this actually look like? Well, here's, here's um, a summary statement. Instead of wondering, how do I find the will of God? A better question to ask is, how do I make good decisions? How do I make good decisions? Because that's, that's, the, the, that's where God is present, is in that process. Uh, how can you and I become wise, faithful, good stewards of what God has entrusted to each and every one of us. Oftentimes, we're tempted to think that God's about God's will for our lives, um, and, and, and we do so in such a way as to abdicate our freedom and responsibility. We'd rather God just tell us exactly what we're supposed to do and what will yield the best results. But God's will isn't small, it's big, and, and this is how love works, right? There's, you can't have a relationship of love without freedom. Love is always a choice. And now we have a chance to make good and wise decisions. And so for the rest of the message, I just want to spend some time talking about kind of the practicality of that. As a pastor, I've over the years, I've gotten a front row seat into people's lives and, and I've collected some common mistakes that we Christians have a tendency to make with regard to decision-making and following God's will for our lives. So here are seven common mistakes, very briefly, that people often make. The first is the outcome bias mistake, and that is that good decisions always mean good results. There's a social scientist by the name of Andy Duke who's written a book on decision-making, and she talks about this, and she refers to it as resulting. It's the idea that, that every good decision will automatically yield good results. And therefore, if you, ha if you got good results, it was a good decision. If you got bad results, it was a bad decision. It's all about the results. But we know that life is far more complicated and messy and gray than that. For example, you could be driving your car through an inter uh, up approaching an intersection, and let's say you get to a red light, and you decide to run that red light. You run the red light, and you go right through the intersection. Nobody crashes into you. Nobody pulls you over. You don't get a ticket, and you just go on your merry way. That was an example of a bad decision that yielded a good result. Let's say, for example, there's the red light and you decide to stop at the red light and you stop at the red light and someone behind you is on their cell phone thinking that the light is still yellow and slams into you. That's an example of a good decision that resulted in a bad result. Not all good decisions yield good results. There are external factors at play and life is complicated, right? And so we're called as Christians to let go of the results, 
to focus on the process. And so don't get caught up in a binary understanding of God's will to think that if something didn't go well, that it must have been the wrong decision. That's not the way it works. Here's the second uh, mistake. This is the destiny mistake. Everything hangs on this decision. This is kind of the fatalist understanding that if, uh, if I make this decision, my life will be set in an entire direction. Maybe you've seen the old movie uh, called Sliding Doors. It was starring Gwyneth Paltrow. And the whole movie hinges on whether or not she is going to make her subway train on time. And, and so the movie has these two different timelines that play out. One if she makes her train and one if she doesn't make her train. And all of the inside out and upside down stuff that happens based on this one tiny little decision setting her off in these entirely different trajectories. It's a film that might drive you a little crazy because we know that life doesn't have to look, look like that. It doesn't have to turn out like that. I missed a subway train with my friend a couple weeks ago in Germany, and we stepped onto the wrong train. It went in the wrong direction, and we needed to get on a connecting train to go to another city, and it set us back an hour, and that's all it did. It just set us back an hour. We made a bad decision, and what really mattered was the next decision, and then the next decision after that. Okay, let's get back over here. Let's stop. Let's have lunch. Let's get on our right train. So the decision of where you go to college is consequential, but it's only one of so many other decisions that are going to follow after you make that decision on the, on the heels of that decision. So we must not get this fatalistic perspective that one choice is good and one is bad. God has given you freedom and area to be able to move and to decide. Number three is the alternate reality mistake. This is the mistake that people often have the tendency to blame their unhappiness or their problems on their circumstance. That what they really need in order to be healthy or happy or better is that they need to change their circumstance. They need to change their relationships. They need to change their job. They need to change their income. They need to change their place of residence, their car, their church, whatever it may be. It's the chasing after the rabbit that if I get this one thing, that will make my life better. Here's how Dallas Willard put it. I love this insight. God has yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. I mean, that is such a philosopher's thing to say. Um, just right, right there, you can pause with it. God doesn't bless you where you are not, right? God, God isn't going to bless you where your imagination has you someday. God will only bless you where you are. And if we faithlessly discard situation after situation, moment after moment, as not being right, we will simply have no place to receive his kingdom in our lives. Wow. God has yet to bless anyone except where they are. This isn't a statement to be taken out of context to say that if you're in a horrible bad and abusive relationship at home or at work that you shouldn't do something to rectify it if you can. No, what it does mean is that many people flip from circumstance to circumstance thinking that circumstances are the solutions to the problem. But the way that God uh, works is that he meets you and I right in the middle of whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. And maybe life isn't about making our circumstances better. It's about learning to be open to, to God in the midst of whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. 
Number four is the magic eight ball mistake. God should just tell me what to do. Um, I, the Bible is an incredible book, right? It is, it is our, our, our primary resource and tool for, for helping us to grow in communion and in our communication with God. And part of that, I'm convinced, is that God wants us to see our stories embedded into the story of Scripture and to see the narratives and the values of Scripture embedded into our lives. But many people treat the Bible as though it's kind of a magic eight ball. And I'm just going to, I have these questions, and I'm just going to kind of, maybe even blindly, you know, flip open and boom, look for answers to my questions as though that's what this is. That's a very uh, utilitarian approach to scriptures that doesn't c- consider the fact that it is the living um, and breathing word. The famous passage from the Bible from Second Timothy chapter 3 that says all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, instructing, and all those things. And the purpose of that, Paul says, is that the person of God might be equipped for every good work. In other words, the, our purpose, the reason we read this Bible is not to find answers to our questions that God isn't interested in giving us anyway. It is to say, God, help me to become the kind of woman, the kind of man who can now be wise. We read scripture to grow in the character and love of God. That's its purpose. James tells us that in his letter that if anyone lacks wisdom, we should ask God, and he'll give it to us generously. God longs for us to be wise. That's what he wants. You can even define wisdom as the truth and character of God lived out in context. That's, that's godly wisdom. It's what is God's character, uh, what is his truth lived out in a particular context. So we should be going to God's word not to give us answers to all of our questions, but to become a particular kind of people that God might use that wisdom that we have gleaned so that we can be part of the shaping and restoring of his world. Okay, here's number five. Um, the weariness, busy mistake, busyness mistake. Oops, I made a bad one. That's really how that goes. It's very simple. The biggest mistakes that I've made in my life with regard to decision making, I think that almost every single time they were bad decisions or unwise decisions because I made them when I was either tired or in a hurry. And if you have a big decision, therefore, or, or lots of little decisions to make, one of the most important things that we can do is to get rest. Because when we are tired, we are unable to make wise decisions. We aren't able to run at full tilt all the time. And there are a lot of decisions that we might regret later if we make them when we're tired or in a hurry. This is why we always try so hard to conclude our session meetings by 9 o'clock. Because... After it goes past nine, we start losing our wisdom. Um, And that's just the way our human flesh limitations are. So maybe the most spiritual thing that you can do is to take a nap, to rest, so we're making better decisions. That's why we keep Sabbath. Number six, the isolationist mistake. This is like, or the toddler mistake. I can do it myself. 
I, I don't need anybody's input. I don't need anyone else's direction. But having the, the, the perspective of a close friend or a loved one is most of the time the best dose of wisdom that you're going to get. Because when you have that conversation, even if the person doesn't even say anything, just by the simple act of having that conversation brings greater clarity and will give you a new perspective, and that person will be able to help shape that perspective in a way that might be make, lead to better decision-making. This is one of the greatest traps that we can fall into when we try to take the burden of decision-making on our own and we forget that God's given us a loving community in order to make those decisions together. It's one of the most valuable things about being part of a church. I think even at an individual level, we are making better decisions in our personal lives when we're in, in, in our Bible studies, when we're in our small groups, when we're attending worship online or in person, um, and when we're part, we're just part of the life of a community of faith, we find that we are also making wiser decisions. Um, okay, so number seven, the last one, this is the avoidance mistake. I'm not ready. John Ortberg used to say that readiness is overrated when it comes to a litmus test for making a good decision. Sometimes we need to make the right decision whether we're ready or not. Frank Harrington was, a was one of the great Presbyterian preachers of the 20th century in one of our denomination's larger churches, and he preached a sermon once on the story of Elijah at Mount Carmel. And it was a humorous story about decision-making and avoidance. And listen to this. This is what he said. I remember meeting with a man many years ago at an early morning hour in this church. He was in trouble. His family was falling apart because of his neglect. He was having big trouble facing the consequences of his neglect. He finally shouted, I meant to do better. Doesn't that count for anything? I said, no, not really. Meaning to do something and intending to do something is far different from doing something. You know the old adage, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I frequently run into members of this church who have not been uh, attending worship with any degree of regularity. We call them BPO members, burial purposes only. I like these members. They like me. We enjoy becoming reacquainted with one another. Somehow they just drifted away. Almost invariably they feel compelled to bring it up. And more often than not it goes something like this. I've been meaning to attend church. Now, friends, meaning to be in church and being in church are two different things. Don't ever confuse the two as being synonymous. They're not. It's like saying to your wife, I've been meaning to be married to you. That's not the same thing as being married to her. So here are all seven of these decision-making mistakes. The outcome bias mistake, good decisions always mean good results. The destiny mistake everything hangs on this decision, the alternate reality mistake, if only, the magic eight ball mistake, God should just tell me what to do, the weariness of busyness mistake, oops, the isolationist mistake, I can do it myself, and the avoidance mistake, I'm not ready. All of these are simply meant to be suggestive to you as you think about decision making 
that you need to do in your own life. The wisdom, the freedom, and the stewardship that God has entrusted to us within his will. Is there some kind of change that you might need to make or tweak in your decision-making process? One more story as we close. In, this bo- in his book on decision-making, Andy Stanley, was, he's a popular evangelical preacher and from Atlanta. He's the son of Charles Stanley, also a popular evangelical preacher in Atlanta. He t- Andy tells the story of when he was growing up and he would go um, to his dad for advice when he had a decision to make. And almost every time it would infuriate Andy and he would get so frustrated because his dad would always answer his questions with more questions. And Andy would push him and say, Dad, you're not telling me what you think. And his dad would say, Andy, I, I'm, not gonna, I'm not always going to be here to tell you what I think. And Andy would say, yeah, but you're here right now. Just tell me what you think. And his dad would say, yes, and the reason that I'm here right now is so that I can help you to become a wise person. So, Andy, tell me, what do you think is the wise thing to do? Of course, this is a metaphor of our personal relationship with God. God is like this loving parent. He's much less interested in directing us. Maybe when we're young in our faith, we we need a little more direction. But as we grow and mature in our faith, just as we want our children to grow to be wise, to make good decisions for themselves, this is God's desire for us so that we can choose, even in our decision-making, to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our mind. And so... God's will is not a tiny little dot that you've got to find through the muck and muddle of life. God's will is a great big sandbox of of freedom and responsibility. Love God and do what you want, and he'll be with you every step of the way. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your grace to us. Thank you for giving us your spirit to guide us, and to lead us into all truth and all wisdom. We long for wisdom, and we ask you to grant us wisdom as your scripture commands us to do. And so with confidence and with faith, we trust that you will grant our request and give us the wisdom that we need to carry on for another week. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you.